Welcome back to the Brave Marriage Podcast, a podcast for couples who want to grow as individuals, do marriage with intention, and live mutually empowered, purposeful lives. I'm Kinsey Dozinski, a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified professional coach, and you are listening to episode one of season two, where, ready or not, like I said in the trailer, we will be diving into an every other week conversation around marriage, mutuality, and gender roles. I know we have some new folks listening, so just to give you a little bit of a background on who it is you're listening to, I am someone who grew up in the church in a small town in Kentucky. I felt called to ministry as a teenager, was commissioned in that calling by my church body, and have spent my vocational life pretty much ever since in marriage ministry, if you will, which for me has taken the shape of becoming a licensed practitioner and working with married couples in the Bible Belt. I studied at Focus on the Family's Leadership Institute in college, where I learned about what has come to be known as biblical manhood and womanhood. I graduated from Asbury University, where we talked a lot about the integration of psychology and theology. I attended Asbury Theological Seminary, where I learned evidence-based practices of couples therapy. And then I worked toward my license as a marriage and family therapist for four years after grad school. And I'm getting to the age now where I can look back on my reading and study of marriage over the past 15 years or so and compare it with what I've seen in my work with couples over the past eight years or so and see what is actually helpful and actually true when it comes to helping couples and what's not. So season two is really a passion project for me to synthesize all of these ideas, and I appreciate you coming along for the ride. (laughs) As I've been thinking about where to start this series, I knew I couldn't start with what's good, what's bad, and here's why as a therapist, because I know as someone who's grown up in the Christian community, how deeply we hold some of our ideas about marriage and what it means to be a good husband or wife. I also know, having grown up in a rural area, that some can feel mistrusting of psychology and therapy. I know that when it comes to relationships, Those of us who've grown up in conservative families and churches trust what we've been taught about marriage and gender roles there, even if we've also been influenced by the media and culture around us. So instead of starting with a therapeutic perspective, I've decided to start this conversation about marriage, mutuality, and gender roles with a little understanding of history. Because when we're inside of a certain context, like right now, as we're living through history, it can be hard to step outside of it to take a look, to examine it, to evaluate it based on its strengths and weaknesses. But personally, when I began to understand marriage in the context of history, that's the place where I was finally able to assimilate all these ideas and come to my understanding of what I've seen in the church versus what I've seen in marriage therapy and in the literature versus what I've seen in my office. So here's what we're going to do. In order to examine marriage as we understand it today, We're going to start by taking a look at marriage in a decade before most of you listening were born, the 1950s. The first time I ever thought about marriage through the lens of history was in 2010 at the Focus Leadership Institute, where I had my first marriage and family studies course. Our professors, as kind of a warm-up exercise, had written each decade from the 20th century on a piece of poster board and then spaced them out around the perimeter of the room. And they instructed us to go and stand in front of the decade in which we thought we'd most want to live if we could, to choose the decade that we thought had the best that marriage and family life had to offer. Okay, so there were 44 of us, and as 20-somethings who grew up in the 90s, most people ended up in front of the 1970s posters or later. 
I, on the other hand, had grown up watching reruns of I Love Lucy, Happy Days, the movie remake of Leave it to Beaver, (laughs) and I had read a lot of Christian books already. So I stood in front of the 1950s poster along with one other classmate who chose that decade because she liked the idea of wearing pearls and poodle skirts. That was her reasoning. But when asked why I chose that decade, I said something about how it seemed like the 1950s held all these moral values that I'd grown up with in church. And so from what I'd seen on TV and read in Christian books, it seemed like the 1950s were a pretty ideal place for Christian families to live. And that's when I got my first education on just how little I understood about the history of marriage in America. That's when I began to realize that marriage as I understood it and had learned to praise it wasn't always quite what it seemed. So now I would like to do a little exercise with you. I'd like you to use your imagination to travel back in time with me to the mid-50s. Eisenhower is president of the United States, and we are about 20 years removed from the end of the Great Depression and about 10 years post-World War II. Compare that with the distance we are today from 9-11 and the recession of 2008. So understandably, between Truman and Eisenhower's presidencies, lots of efforts had gone into restabilizing society and the economy upon the return of millions of World War II veterans. This effort is seen in government programs like the GI Bill, which provided unemployment aid, education, and mortgage assistance to millions of American veterans. It's seen in strengthening the image of America as a strong, militarized nation armed with a capitalist economy and Christian family values. It's seen in the emergence of the ideal American family, the nuclear family, with a breadwinning husband who works outside the home and a stay-at-home wife who works within the home to keep her family strong. Can you bring to mind the image of Rosie the Riveter? Well, if she was the model picture of a woman in the 1940s, a woman who stepped up and served and worked to aid in the war effort on behalf of her country, then upon World War II veterans' return, Rosie the Riveter was replaced with the image of June Cleaver as the ideal 1950s woman. So imagine you're a married person doing life in this 1950s world. Some societal and economic stabilization has been achieved, and if you fit into the majority culture— You're enjoying the benefits of this in a disproportionate scale to your black neighbors, for example. I say this to indicate that many black Americans weren't granted equal access to things like VA mortgage loans or suburban housing due to some legalese in the GI Bill that placed federal benefits in the hands of the state, many of whom were still operating under Jim Crow laws and racial segregation in the South. But on the whole, the economy is flourishing such that compared to what's been called the prosperous 20s, the middle class in America has nearly doubled, as has your discretionary income. In the mid-1950s, this means wealth building, again, if you're the recipient of these government programs, and extra money for things like houses with separate bedrooms for everyone, a second car, a new TV, modern kitchen appliances. So imagine you've just endured a few decades there of recession, of war, and of hardship. And in a matter of 10 years, you find yourself the recipient of a quaint little home in the suburbs with a church of your denomination not too far away. You can now rest easy in the assurance that you live in a safe Christian nation, which you're reminded of now every time you say the Pledge of Allegiance, which now includes the phrase, One Nation Under God, as of 1957. 
or every time you spend your new discretionary income because of the recent addition of In God We Trust that's been added to all U.S. currency. So, I mean, compared to what you've known, this is the good life, right? This seems like the ideal or the American dream, at least to those who have access to it. And as a middle-class couple living in the 1950s, you find yourself enamored with a couple of things. First of all, new and improved home technologies that you can now afford, like the washing machine, an electric dryer, a refrigerator-freezer combo, all things that promise to make your home life more convenient. Okay, this is like the Alexa or the Roomba of the 1950s. And on the topic of home life, the second thing you find yourself all consumed by is how to construct this nuclear family that you're seeing everywhere in mass media and in pop culture. From TV shows to magazine ads to family experts to marriage advice columns, it seems like all efforts are being made at solidifying and reinforcing these male-female traditional gender roles. From Hoover vacuums, you see ads that read, she'll be happier with a Hoover. From a refrigerator company, you see a blindfolded mom holding the hand of a child while her husband presents her new fridge. The copy reads, the surprise of her life and the best. From Edward Podolsky's book in 1943, Sex Today and Wedded Life, you read, be a good listener. Let your husband tell you all of his troubles and yours will seem trivial by comparison. Don't bother him with petty troubles or complaints when he comes home from work. Let him relax before dinner. Discuss family problems after the inner man has been satisfied. Remember, your most important job is to build up and maintain his ego. Morale is a woman's business. In his advice column in the Ladies' Home Journal, Can This Marriage Be Saved?, Paul Popino, father of marriage counseling, whom we don't talk much about in the actual field, by the way, maintained that yes, absolutely a marriage can be saved as long as a woman devotes her life to keeping her husband happy, faithful, and successful. A man's behavior was thought not to reflect his character, but to offer a window inside his home as to what type of woman he was married to and what type of home environment she was creating for him that contributed to his behavior and his success at work. And a question I have today is why? Why were so many in the 1950s invested in creating and maintaining split-sphere gender roles? Well, from a socio-ecological perspective, if you're trying to restabilize a society that's been marked for decades by men leaving the workforce and going to war, and women entering the workforce with higher-paying wages than they've known before, and then suddenly, both men and women are trying to find their place again in the midst of a culture that looks quite different from the world before they left, then the way to give men and women a sense of purpose and patriotism after World War II is to promote these split-sphere gender roles as a way to continue to serve your country, especially through the Cold War, by keeping the family strong. Because if Pope John Paul II is right, and as the family goes, so goes the nation, and so goes the whole world in which we live, then someone has to step up and make sure it stays ordered, right? So for men, it seemed the hope was re-entry into the workplace and back into their seat of influence. And for women, the hope was that the preoccupation with and the distraction of domesticity would soften the blow of what they were losing by focusing on all they stood to gain, namely, a happy home, a happy husband, and the social rewards of playing by the rules and conforming to cultural marital scripts. Coming back to the 21st century, 
What messages like this linger? Does this advice seem absurd to you? Or does it seem in line with what you've been taught or internalized somewhere along the way? Now, just one more time travel before we end this episode. I want you to go back with me all the way to the early church in the first century, about 20 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Imagine the legacy left by Jesus in the Greco-Roman world. Imagine trying to understand how to live according to the legacy of a man who was also God, who literally died for your eternal salvation, but before that, challenged culture and the status quo by bringing life and health and wholeness and dignity to men, women, rich, poor, Jews, Gentiles, and the most marginalized in society. Imagine his influence as you consider this line which Paul writes to the Christians in Rome in Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The New Living Translation translates it this way. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So my last question for you is, if we're not to conform to the patterns of this world or copy its behavior, then why does so much of what we're taught today in the church reflect the culture of 1950s America rather than mirroring Christ? If you have thoughts, questions you'd like to eventually have answered on the podcast, or monologues that you need to get off your chest, know that I can relate and I would love to hear from you. You're welcome to email your innermost thoughts to kinsey at debravemarriage.com. I'd really like to engage with you and hear where you are and what you're taking from the season along the way. And that's it for today on the Brave Marriage Podcast. I'm your host, Kinsey Dzinski. Podcast editing is by Evan Dzinski. Thank you so much for listening and for your interest in learning. If you've enjoyed this episode and are excited for the series, more than anything else I could ask of you, please share this with someone else you think might be interested. I'll be back in two weeks to pick up where we left off, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. Love is not a bond. Love is just as fragile as it is.